Welcome to Build Repeat, a Paces podcast. Hello, today we're speaking with Ryan Kelleher, Vice President of Renewable Solutions at Tradition Energy and Executive Director of the ASGA, the American Solar Grazing Association. Welcome to the podcast, Ryan. Thanks, James. Uh, exciting to be here. Cool work that you're doing at Paces. I'm very appreciative. I guess to start, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you ended up at both Tradition Energy and the ASGA? Yeah, I would be happy to. I grew up uh, sort of, I call myself kind of a New England baby because my parents were divorced when I was young, unimportant, but I grew up sort of partly in Vermont and partly in the Boston area. Um, and I actually got involved in solar pretty early on. My stepdad uh, up in Vermont started a heliostat company, Reflective Mirrors, back in the days before PV was really cheap. And he started a uh, a company called Solarflect Energy on a couple of about $2 million of DOE grants to build these new tracking systems, basically took a bunch of uh, steel out of the typical H-frame you'd use on a dual-axis tracker like that and replace it with aircraft cables. Unfortunately, or fortunately, during the time of designing these things, the PV cost, that was in the, the middle years where PV cost was going through the floor, and we ended up slapping tra- uh, panels on there instead to just make dual-axis PV trackers. So I kind of grew up around that business. After school, I came back and uh, worked there in operations for a while and um, kind of got a really good feel for how at least homeowners interact with their energy. We also did some small community solar fields. Uh, a few years later, I moved to Boston and started at Nexamp, which at the time was, I think I was maybe about the 80th employee. And they were developing community solar fields kind of in all markets. There's a really cool policy arm that opens up new states, big tax equity backing, financing a really large portfolio. I was on the operations side there, and that's actually where I got involved with ASGA because one of my jobs on the lifecycle maintenance side was to cut all the grass. Uh, And it seemed kind of increasingly silly that we were mowing these, you know, thousands of acres that we have under solar fields, which is where I got in touch with some sheep farmers in New York and Lexi Hain, who founded ASGA. We decided to do a a pilot program and sort of built it up. And now Nexamp is grazing 1,500 or something acres of of land with sheep uh, under the solar fields. After about five years at Nexamp, I just switched uh, only a few months ago, actually, to Tradition Energy where we're the largest corporate energy procurement advisor in the country. We price around 500 million kilowatt hours a week energy for large corporate customers. So I'm here now uh, putting sustainability solutions in place for those customers, whether they want to do an offsite or an onsite solar deal. If they want community solar, we'll also do things like energy audits and benchmarking. So yeah, really great stuff. Exciting to be here. Yeah, no, su- super cool background. Uh, I'd love to get into in more depth on ASCA in a moment. But just in terms of Tradition Energy, I guess, how have the kind of opportunities at Tradition, I know you've only been there less than a year, but how are you seeing uh, things change, you know, as we're ha- seeing things like the rollout of the Inflation Reduction Act and those different types of programs and incentives? Yeah, great question. But I think what we're seeing, the sort of broad point here is that sustainability, the conversation around it is becoming table stakes for anyone talking about energy. And Tradition's been in business for 35 or 70 years or something, procuring just general power contracts, usually brown, um, sometimes with RECs. But increasingly, the people that are buying the energy, our decision makers, are not just the facilities people, not just the accounting team. A lot of times there's a sustainability person in the room. So it's kind of important not only to maintain our, our relationships, but it's also becoming more of a part of prospecting for for new clients. Super cool. And getting into then ASGA. So, you know, I, I think I have like a bit of a special kind of connection to the idea of uh, sheep grazing on solar panels. So, you know, folks who've listened to a lot of episodes know that I grew up on a sheep farm in Ireland. So we had 200 head of sheep, mostly Suffolk sheep, but we we experimented with different uh, different breeds over the years. 
And basically from age 9, 10, 11, all the way up to, you know, went off to university, pretty much every spring was a very intense period of what we call lambing in, in Ireland when you know, oh, yep, yep. 200 head are, are giving birth and uh, you're taking it in turns. So my father, my brother and I to basically check the sheds uh, every two hours, every night. And you know, that was basically, you know, and so I will say when I was a teenager, I wasn't loving all that, um, but like hindsight looking back, a remarkable set of experiences and so you know when i started kind of getting more into the solar space and reading about agrivoltaics and specifically around sheep grazing uh, as a solution for things like the things you mentioned around mowing and, and some of these other elements i found it really, really fascinating and so i guess yeah. to kind of take a step back you mentioned a little bit about the mowing side but why is solar grazing so potentially important and impactful yeah, great question. Um, and there's a couple different, I guess it sort of depends who you're talking about it being important for. So I'll kind of break that down a little bit. For the farmer, and that's really the most important thing, there's a whole bunch of benefits that come with grazing sheep on a solar farm. For The, the baseline thing is that if you've got a flock of sheep and you want to expand it, you need more land. And usually you're going to have to rent that land from somebody. So, you know, there's negative money there to expand your operation. Instead here, we're seeing solar developers are paying farmers anywhere from a few hundred to many hundreds of dollars per acre just to maintain the vegetation because that's the opportunity cost on the solar side. So, you know, if you're a farmer that can get a $500 per acre contract to graze, you know, to graze uh, a solar field and you're only needing to run five head an acre, your unit economics on on selling sheep, whether it's wool or meat, just went you know, changed by $100 per head, which is really significant, really even to the point that small farmers in the Northeast can can start competing with imports from Australia and New Zealand, which is where we get the bulk of our, our lamb meat. And then the other side of it is beyond the financial benefits to farmers, um, and those extend even to uh, for instance, you don't have to bring as much water to your sheep as they would, you know, as they would drink on a field that didn't have solar panels because there's there's a lot more heat stress on the on the sheep. And then further, you know, if you can keep your your sheep on a solar field all year eating the grass there, you can maybe hay the land that you have back at home, feed them over the winter. So there's there's kind of a lot of good feedback effects on the solar side. It's really really helpful not only for management but also for permitting. And to break down the management side a little bit. When you're making a budget to maintain a solar field, the largest line item in a in a in a management budget for a ground mount array is usually uh, the vegetation. It just costs a lot of money to mobilize people, and when you're budgeting for it, you budget usually for a certain number of cuts, and that's fine. But you know, the, from what I've seen in the Northeast, at least, if you're budgeting for two or three cuts, that can get dicey quick because we don't have a very cold winter. The grass starts growing up in March and you have to do your first cut at the end of March so you're not shading the panels. You get into real trouble then because your next one's going to be in June. And then, you know, by the middle of July, you've run out of budget money. It's really, really different when you've got these aligned incentives of farmers that are trying to get as much food for their sheep as they can on the fields. And that's not to mention uh, how much local farmers really take care of land. It's a much different, it's a much different relationship with the land itself. Um, if you've got someone you know, it's farmed in the area for years as opposed to a mowing group that might get sent out to to cut the thing and they're driving around 10 different sites in New York and then back to wherever they started. That was a lot of information. We can talk about the permitting stuff too, but I'll let you jump back in. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think permitting will, will go pretty deep on. And and just on the, the shading piece. So it's remarkable, even in Ireland, where we obviously don't have anywhere close to the heat of the weather in the United States, 
Um, if you have any sort of hot, you know, sunny day, especially before you shear the sheep, which usually takes place at some point during the summer, you know, on any sort of hot day, all the sheep are just thronged below any sort of tree or anywhere at all where they can get some shade. Imagine anyone listening, going out on a summer day before you break out the shorts and t-shirts wearing a, you know, a winter coat, right? That's basically have to kind of handle for often a few weeks or a month or two. And having that shade of actual solar panels is kind of this remarkable combination and really kind of a lucky coincidence that, that those needs are met kind of um, in, in both directions. The management side on the solar, I think, is, is really interesting. And it does go, you know, nearly, and this might be a lead in, on, into the permitting side. You know, one of the things that a lot of developers that we speak to struggle with is when you're trying to make any sort of very, very large change in an area, there is an understandable level of distrust or, you know, you have to earn the trust. Uh, maybe that's a better way of saying it. And so anything that can mm-hmm. be embedded within the existing motion of that community is just going to have a better chance of success. You know, you might legally be able to get a project built and all those different kinds of things. And we're very pro getting projects built in general, you know, folks who, who come on this podcast and, and the people that we work with at Paces. But I think the if you can, as you said, like connect with the local folks where they can see the actual dollars and cents staying in the local community. They can see that the people that they actually know, who they see in the shop or the church or whatever it may be, those are the people who are responsible for that kind of operational management of, of the foliage and so on. That, I think, generally will kind of reduce community opposition in general, even if you can get the permit. Yep. Uh, and ha- building that kind of emotional relationship with the community is quite essential. Yeah, hundred percent. And these are significant contracts for the local farmers. You know, they'll they'll if you're on a a big site, you know, if you've got a hundred acres, you very well could be getting paid five hundred dollars an acre, and that's a real game changer when it comes to you know operating a farm. And one other thing I should mention is that these kind of this whole slots in really nicely in a way, and why and why sheep are kind of we expect to sort of take over in the realm of agrivoltaics, especially for utility scale, is there's not really the same type of aligned incentives when it comes to other types of crop growing or even bees, where the sheep are are really providing such a clear service compared to something on a, a budget that has a line item for cutting the grass. It gets a lot more difficult for other kinds of crops because in most cases, you're either going to need to raise the panels or do something else, you know, pay someone to come in with the, to harvest the stuff, and then it's not going to be competitive at a grocery store. So that's kind of where we see sheep being the, the first and easiest way to cover as much uh, as the solar land as we can um, with farming. And as far as we can tell, we're actually doing some surveys right now, but we think we're on one to two gigawatts of solar. So a little under, or, you know, one or 2% maybe of uh, what's in the country. So there's a big opportunity here. And if you think about that growth opportunity, is that more from existing uh, sheep farmers who are looking to expand, as you mentioned kind of earlier in the conversation, or do you also see farmers who are traditional monocrop or they have other type of livestock like cattle or whatever it may be, considering moving across and saying, okay, uh, maybe I won't convert my entire sh- farm to sheep to take advantage of sheep grazing and agrivoltaics, but some proportion might make sense. Yeah, definitely. And the shift that happens, I think the most would be someone going from like beef cows, and then they have sort of the same facilities for the most part that you need for sheep, which are sheep, you know, if you can manage, if you can manage cows, you can manage sheep pretty much. It's easier. You might need, yeah, they're easier. They're they're (laughs) a lot. You can pick up a sheep, you can't pick up a a, a cattle. Yeah, yeah. And one bottleneck we're actually having right now is there's almost not enough sheep in the country, really, to cover the solar fields that are needed. You know, we're getting... We we see RFPs kind of through ASGA for all sorts of levels of stuff, and 
in some cases people are looking for 30 or 40,000 acres of, of grazing, which that's great, but it's going to take several years to build up the sort of the, st the stock of uh, sheep that we need to actually do the work. And just in terms of, let's say, the appetite for sheep, Brian, both on the on the meat and wool side of things, uh, you oh, mentioned yeah. imports from Australia and New Zealand. Those are the chief imports. Uh, and just as an aside, folks, you know, who, who you know, would ask uh, me in, in the United States, oh, you raise sheep, like mostly sell the wool. And it's like, no, we would we would shear the sheep at a loss because the, the value, the cost of wool coming from Australia and New Zealand is just so much lower because of the scale yeah. that they can get to and and you have to shear the sheep for the the overheating reasons we mentioned before and so the only uh money you can make off sheep in ireland is, is from selling the meat basically but i guess do you in terms of seeing that potential market expanding in the united states is it basically eating more and more into that import market until you meet that need from like a you know the, the kind of grazing across tens of thousands of acres yeah yeah great question so well just some numbers to level set is if you're putting in perspective how much Americans eat, it's actually, it's interesting, the EIA, not the EIA, it must, one of the federal bodies reports this and they, they call it disappearance, like meat disappearance is the, is the term they use. So for a typical American, you know, the average, people are eating about 50 pounds of beef, 50 pounds of pork, this is annually, 100 pounds of beef, and about one pound of, of lamb meat. We don't really eat mutton in the U.S. for the most part, uh, which would be mature lambs. We send those to... um to Mexico. But so, you know, there's, in terms of the addressable market of meat eating that happens in the U.S., it's enormous, but there's sort of some lasting, I guess it's, people don't tend to view lamb meat necessarily on the same level as other meats in terms of how good it is. And, and some of that's holdover from, for example, uh, a lot of baby boomers, it's, you know, the baby boomers don't eat a ton of lamb. And part of that is because when American GIs were over in World War II on the front lines in Europe, they were eating canned mutton from Australia. And when they came back, they were like, you know, we don't, we're all set with, with sheep and lamb meat. And then on top of that, you've got these really big industry groups for the beef and pork and chicken associations that are running chicken for breakfast campaigns. So there's, there's definitely some headwinds uh, in terms of raising the amount that's eaten. And we kind of need to do that with con in concert with rolling out the lamb, because if there's no market for it, you know, that's just not a good solution long-term. Yeah, and, and there are the advantages to sheep. You know, if you think about the livestock mix from a carbon emissions point of view, and also we, you mentioned a little bit about a lot of the kind of overlap between beef livestock grazing and sheep grazing. Um, but in general, because of the nature of sheep, it's very hard to factory farm sheep in quite the same way. And yeah. so in general, the, the quality of life of sheep raised for meat relative to other animals that you mentioned raised for meat is just by its nature better, just because sheep can't actually survive in very, very enclosed experience, like uh, enclosed sheds and so on for a very long yep. time. And so this also helps balance some of the kind of other ethical concerns around, you know, animal welfare, uh, carbon emissions and so on. Yeah, in general, just the interesting point on the carbon emissions is I generally try to steer ASGA away from the carbon emission conversation, only because I think we get into a, a little bit of a situation where we're, you know, what is less bad. Um, sure. And that's not really the issue, you know, when it when it comes to the end of it. Lamb, lamb meat is actually fairly bad from a carbon perspective, just because when you take one sheep and one cow, they both have similar emissions, uh, methane emissions, but the cow, you get a lot more edible meat uh, sort of mm -hmm. per animal. So from that, that point of calculation, it's not great. The, the other the better side of it that people are trying to talk about is that when you put the lambs on the, or when you put the sheep on the solar field, they're really good for the land and they help the 
the soil actually soak up more carbon by pounding it with their hooves basically all day. And then also the enablement of uh, emissions-free energy, right? And, and making also this. that possible. So let's get into the permitting side as we kind of finish out here. So it is very, very hard to build solar in the United States and, and yep. most places. Just to give the audience some stats that we've kind of generated ourselves internally, for projects that have site control, where the renewable developer, the solar developer has land either leased options or bought, they typically have a one in five chance at best of getting a project built there. And mm-hmm. so 80% of projects fail, often due to things around connecting to the grid. Um, but the next big bucket is the permitting process to go through you know, with all the various groups. So you have, local community, you have the local community, you have to often go through different types of environmental steps and so on. How is sheep grazing... Uh, you know, helping that, uh, that permitting picture. Yeah. Um, well, so maybe the best thing is I could give a couple of examples. So where, where the sheep are super helpful is beyond the fact that if the farmer shows up at the permitting meeting and says, I'm a local farmer, this is going to benefit my business. That's obviously a, a really helpful thing. The other thing is that there's a lot of, there's pushback all over the place in a lot of different states on local siting, and that's obviously more your core business than, than I would know about. But the rules around them are often written in a way that they think are going to mess them up, but that sheep do help. So uh, example is there were several fields uh, in Massachusetts that we worked on uh, in next camp days where the, they, the town tried to put a rule saying, uh, okay, you can build your solar field, but you can't mow it between May and November. We can't have any sort of mechanical tractors anywhere near this place made in November because of whatever the flowering plants are. Obviously a pretty big problem for solar field. We came back to them with, well, can we graze it? And then they really had nothing else to say. And that's a pattern that at least at NextAmp, we've definitely already seen the value of where we're able to take a piece of land that's already gotten a no and change it to a yes, because we're coming with a a management plan backed with, hey, we farm, you know, 1500 acres already across the country. And it's a really good way to build trust pretty much. Yeah, no, absolutely. And the... You know, the, the letter versus the spirit of the rule, I, I think this is this fascinating space that a lot of developers are very dependent on to get projects built. You know, we had a developer in a, in a slightly different context, but say, uh, you're not allowed to build solar on a particular type of zoned land, but in this particular village or, or town, in, it's also upstate New York, there was somebody who had left uh, like in a, a very rundown industrial building on that zone. And so the developer was able to get it rezoned oh, because in, in turn, they would like dem, de, like take down that like building that was a bit of an eyesore. And so there's yep. just like this constant kind of uh, negotiation occurring. And so as yep. I said, if you have these like pros that you, these, these various kind of um, pros to go against the various cons of a certain type of development uh, and all various complaints that can occur, you just are increasing the likelihood, right? And again, we're not saying you go from like, a one in five success rate to like a four or five success rate. Mm-hmm. But even if we are increasing the number of projects getting built by 20, 30%, that's still a big win. That's huge. Yeah. And that's what the American Solar Grazing Association, most of our work is beyond just doing outreach and trying to have good best practices documents and surveying mm-hmm. to understand where all the grazing is happening and our maps. We're also trying to make sure that more solar gets built. And it really does help in these situations where you've got a town and they say, we need this to be farming or explain to us how you're not going to have mowers here or any sort of these issues. It's a big difference. Yeah. And um, we talked a little bit before the podcast started, but we, you know, basically we'd love to get some of that data and integrate it for developers to oh, yeah. you know, take advantage of that more going forward. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's an exciting space for sure. And, um, and other thing I meant to say is beyond all that, those resources we have, a lot of what we do is talking with groups like the American farmland trust and the American land board, 
and trying to make sure that everyone's on the same page because they're really big organizations that have major influence over what happens, you know, whether it's a Bureau of Land Management making decisions or uh, just a state, these farming groups really get listened to and their members control a huge, huge amount of land in the U.S. So we need to make sure that, you know, sheep are considered part of agrivoltaics and that we're doing it right and that insurance is all clear with everybody, that kind of stuff. So just trying to, to smooth the wheels when we're doing all this. Absolutely. And, and we definitely kind of reflect that, the importance of that as well on our side. But thank you, you know, Ryan, this has been fantastic. Um, I really enjoyed the yeah, conversation. Right. Before we finish off, is there anything I should have asked you about but did not? Uh, asked me about or did not. Jeez. You know, there's, I don't know that we missed anything major. There's just a lot of opportunity out there. I mean, there's so many different states and utilities to talk about that sort of have their own, um, as you know, funky sort of unique things. But um, yeah, I appreciate your guys' work. And it would be great to try to incorporate some of the grazing data because I think it, it really probably is a pretty good indicator of where projects are getting built if you really overlay it. Yeah, absolutely. And also think uh, Aska's work is incredible. So we're going to be you know, promoting Aska's uh, work on the show notes of, of uh, this podcast uh, and on our newsletter and so on. Uh, and also with our existing you know, developer customers, because I think it's, uh, it's funny, like agrivoltaics, you go to conferences and there's always like a couple sessions on it. But there's often like a a gap, I think, between what's that next actionable step that the developer can take. And I think the work that you guys are doing like really helps to close that gap. Yeah. And it's becoming table stakes in the same way that we're talking about where like in Illinois, for instance, if you want to be in the adjustable block program, you basically have to have sheep on your site to get enough points to be allowed through the process. So, you know, whether most developers are going to have to interact with this, whether they want to or not. Um, And the sooner that you can get started and sort of build that portfolio of how you're really engaging with farming, the more it's going to benefit you down the road and uh, as you're going out to new market. Um, and yeah, and if anyone wants to reach out to ASGA, we're always happy to talk to developers. Um, we're all volunteer. We have uh, one full-time project coordinator who does great work. Um, but, you know, we're basically doing as much as we can with the funding that the developers are are willing to share because um, they know it helps them get projects built. Yeah, absolutely. And it's great work uh, indeed. So thank you very much, Ryan. It's been great. Cool. Thanks, James. Have a great day. Thanks for listening. If you like the podcast, we'd love a five-star rating. Thank you so much.